You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone, welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. Today is November 29, 2021, and on today's episode, I'll let you know the stocks I'm going to be buying for the portfolio this week. I'm going to be recapping my weekend bet picks and then giving out a slate for today and tomorrow. And then I'll be ending today's episode with a lesson on mutual funds, hedge funds, and 401ks, and the importance they provide to the stock market. Hope you enjoy the episode. Financial Disclaimer Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back apes and retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to give you a recap of the apes portfolio. And then I'm going to let you know at what price points I'm going to be setting my buy limits for the three stocks I want to be buying this upcoming week. And I'll be keeping the segment short today, but I'll be letting you know what my plans are for the upcoming future, especially in time periods where I have a lot of my money tied up in certain positions. Because I'm not going to just keep putting in money and buying stocks just to refer you guys to buy stocks. So without wasting any more time, let me get straight into the apes portfolio. So not much could possibly have changed since Friday outside of my bet picks. And overall, my bet picks this weekend weren't too hot and I wound up losing $22 off the $100 risked. Even with the weekend losses, my portfolio is still valued at $1,050. So I'm still up 5%, but if we're looking on trends, I'm going downwards because remember, a couple weeks ago I was about 18%. But that's okay, this is a long game and this update is just to let you know how I'm doing in my current standing. Now what I'm going to be doing this upcoming week is using the last little bits of my resources, at least from the stock position, to completely build this apes portfolio. So what I mean by that is I'm going to be placing my buy limits for the companies I wanted to buy, which is Chegg, ComputerShare, and Super League Gaming. Also, today is payday, at least for the account. Not for me. Normally I get paid at the beginning of the month. But in terms of this account, like I said, I'll be depositing $100 at the end of each month. And this is going to be the last episode that's going to be falling on this month of November. So what I'm going to be doing today is putting $50 into my TD Ameritrade account and then $50 into my Coinbase account. This way I'm splitting the $100 into two accounts. Since the gambling segment is still up from where I started, I don't feel a need to add any money there. Now since I'm recording this on Sunday night and I can't really predict what's going to be happening in the market today, what I can let you know is that after the market closes today, I'll be placing my buy orders that are going to be good until cancelled. I found out from placing buy limits primarily because of this podcast that you can place buy limits in two ways. 
you can place a buy limit that gets canceled if the order isn't fulfilled by the end of the day, or you can place a buy limit that is good until canceled. And sometimes there's a max limit for how long you can do this, which might be up to 90 days. But regardless, this is good to know, especially for this podcast, and if you're someone that wants to buy a security at the price you want, because you can just set buy limits and then forget about it. So what I'm going to be doing after the market closes today on Monday, November 29th, is I'm going to be putting in a buy limit order for Chegg. I'm going to try to buy four shares at a price of $20. Now I understand this might be a huge difference from what the current market price might be, but I'm still going to put it at $20 and set the buy limit order to be good to cancel. And I'm going to try and find a max date for this. So this way, if in the coming weeks Chegg hits $20 without me even paying attention, I'm going to be buying four shares for this account. I'm also going to be buying five shares of computer share. Now, the ticker for this one is going to be CMSQY, not the F1, because I don't want the foreign stock, primarily because I don't want to pay $50 transaction fee for this APE's portfolio. In my personal account, I don't care, and I actually just buy it in bulk. But for this account, I'm going to be buying the ADR version, and I'm going to be putting in a buy limit of five shares at the price of $13.50. And since I've still got some leftover cash to play with, I might as well buy some shares of a company that I've already talked pretty highly of on this podcast so far, and I have an options play in them. So it just makes a little more sense that if the option hits, I get extra profits this way. And that company is Super League Gaming. I'm going to be attempting to buy 20 shares of Super League Gaming at a price point of $3.25. Now I'm going to be putting all of these buy limit orders to be good to cancel up to 90 days. So what this means is that after the market closes today, I'll be putting all these orders in. And if in the next 90 days, none of the price targets are hit for the stock I want, then the order is going to be canceled. And if I want my money back instead of placing it on this trade, I can just manually cancel it myself. I find it easier to do it this way than to continuously place a buy limit at the beginning of each morning. Now if it so happens that the 90 days go by and one of the securities aren't bought, I'll come back to that problem when that situation unfolds. Until then, I'll leave these buy limit orders open unless I tell this podcast otherwise. So to repeat the buy orders I'm going to be placing after the market closes today, I'm going to be putting in a buy limit of 4 shares of Chegg at a price point of $20. For computer shares ADR version, which is CMSQY, I'm going to be buying 5 shares of that at a price point of $13.50. And then for Super League Gaming, which is SLGG, I'm going to be purchasing 20 shares at $3.25. Now if I did my math correctly, this would come out to a total cost of about $212.50. So barring any fees or any actual differences in the price that I bought these shares at, I'm going to be spending about $210 for these securities. My plan is to hold them for the long run. Chegg is the one I'm more speculating about, and Computer Share and Super League Gaming are companies that I believe in. So now that I'm going to be locking up to $210 worth of securities, I'm only going to be having a little bit of money to play with stocks and options. I'll still have some money to play around with the cryptos, but the next point I wanted to get to was what I will be doing and what my plan is going forward with this podcast during time periods where a lot of my money, especially for the securities and crypto segment, are locked up. Because I'm not going to be trying to plan on beating the market, I'm going to use a buy and hold strategy. But in order to keep this podcast entertaining, I'm going to still talk about what's going on in the markets. And I'm also going to be keeping up with the companies that make up this portfolio. So that means if anything is coming up within the securities that we have outside in the real world, 
I'll be sure to let you know and I'll cover that on this podcast. And I'll be sure to keep a close eye on the stock and crypto markets so I can provide some decent coverage on this podcast forum. Along with just keeping up with regular stock and crypto markets and giving you some highlights on them within a week-to-week basis, I'll also let you know my plays when it comes to my personal portfolio. I might never disclose the true total amounts and everything I'm doing, but I'll at least let you know the stocks, options, and anything I'm looking into. Because in my personal portfolio, I like to speculate a lot more and take some gambles and risks here and there, but I'm not going to be doing that as much with this portfolio. I mean, for obvious reasons, I'm doing that with the gambling account, and when I'm purchasing options, I'm doing this as well. But I'm not speculating nearly as much as I do in my personal portfolio. So in time periods when a lot of the cash in this apes portfolio is held up in securities, and I'm just waiting to deposit more money, what I'll be doing is just covering the markets overall in general. So sometimes these segments might not be too long at all. The overall premise of this whole podcast is just to get you involved into the markets, and if you like the way I run a portfolio, by all means feel free to pick and choose what you want to follow from it. Maybe someday what I'm doing can be viewed as one giant community pooled mutual fund. And if you're not sure what that means, well stick around till the end, because I have a lesson on that. So now that you know what my plan is moving forward with this podcast, especially during time periods where I'm going to be stagnant in the portfolio making decisions because most of the cash is just in securities, I'll wrap up the investing segment. And I'm hoping that the next time I get to talk to you, at least one of these buy orders will have been activated. So until next time everyone, ape out. Welcome back my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to this portion of the sports gambling segment. On today's episode, I'm going to recap the bets I had over the weekend, and I didn't do too hot, wound up losing $22 on the initial $100 risked, but I'm going to see if I can redeem myself with a little bit of basketball action today and tomorrow, and I'll also throw in the Monday night football game. So the first pick I'm going to cover is that one slate I had on Friday. Now remember how I tried to make an 8 pick round robin on Friday, but I wound up looking at the wrong NBA schedule, so I picked some teams that weren't playing. It wound up being a 7 team round robin because I caught my mistake, but I still bet on the teams I said I would. So I'm going to recap that bet real quick. I had Purdue to cover their spread at minus 36.5 and they were able to. I had Tennessee to win by at least 23 and they weren't able to cover that hefty spread. Kentucky was able to cover their huge spread of winning by at least 25. Gonzaga actually got upset by Duke, so they didn't cover their 9-point spread. And then the Bulls and Bucks were able to cover their spread, where the Bulls were set at 9.5 and the Bucks at 3.5. And then the Lakers got upset to the Kings in triple overtime, so they weren't able to win by 8. Overall, by risking $21 on this, I came out on top with just 89 cents. So this was kind of just betting to break even, which isn't a bad thing in betting, because if you're just a sports fan, this is the best way to bet. Because... You don't wind up losing any money or making any at the end, so at least you had fun watching the sports games. So now I'll move on to the three round robins that I actually created for the weekend. I'll start off with the soccer one I had since that was the only profitable one I had. Now in this round robin I wound up going 5 for 8, and the bet picks that won it out for me was Köln, Barcelona, Real Betis, and Real Madrid winning their money lines, and then I also had Arsenal to cover their spread by winning by 2 goals. The bet picks that did not hit were Wolfsburg and Real Sociodad to win, and then nice to also cover their spread of 2 points. 
they actually wound up being upset 1-0. But overall, by placing $28 risk on this bet slip, I actually made $18.66. Now, here's where things don't get as pretty. In my college football slate, I wound up going 4 for 8. So the 4 bet picks that won it out for me was Georgia winning by 36, Army and Michigan State winning straight out as underdogs, and then UCLA to cover their 6.5 point spread. The bets that did not win was Alabama to win by 21, Houston to win by 33, Ohio State to win by 7, and then Texas A&M to win by 6.5. By placing $28 risk on this, I only wound up losing $2. My next bet slip, however, didn't do too hot. It was my underdog's NFL slate. Remember any given Sunday? Well, I don't think this Sunday was any given one. And I also happened to have been biased by not choosing the Giants as the underdog slate, which they beat out my Eagles, and honestly, that game was such a disappointment, so I'm kind of glad I don't cover sports too in-depth yet, because I would be devastated to cover that match. But nonetheless, the only underdogs that won for me on this slate were the Jets, Dolphins, and Packers. And by doing so, I risked $28 on this bet slip and lost $14.50, so I lost about half my money risked on this one slip. Now if you remember, I also made 4 different parlays and I put $4 risked on each one. Unfortunately none of those hit, even though I had some close calls. In the 4 pick overs parlay I had, the only game that didn't go over was the Jets and the Texans game. They missed the over mark by about 9 points, so a touchdown and a field goal. Kinda disappointing, but it is what it is, and I'm hoping that on this podcast I at least hit one of these parlays so you can see the significance and why I don't mind risking money, especially for these outrageous bets. Now the other parlay I had, which I thought was going to be a for sure one, which was a mistake on my end for even thinking that, but I thought the Eagles, Bucks, and Chargers being parlayed together would actually hit. Now the Eagles and Chargers wound up being upset, and the Bucks were able to pull their win away. Regardless, I only went 1 for 3 in that parlay, so it didn't hit. Now the next 4 pick parlay I had was the divisional game unders parlay. And this seemed like a great parlay since the Eagles and Giants game definitely hit under and then so did the Broncos and Chargers. But the Bengals completely destroyed the Steelers and they almost covered the over by themselves. Because the over under was set at 45 and the Bengals scored 41. So that because the Bengals put on such a show, this under was not hit. And my bet also wasn't. And then the last parlay I had was just three underdogs pick, the Dolphins, Packers, and Steelers. The Dolphins and Packers were able to do me justice, but the Steelers, well, they showed me why they were underdogs. So together I put $16 risked into all of those parlays, and none of them won out. But I'm okay with that, because I know if one of them even won out, I would have gotten five times my money. So missing out on $16, I'm hoping I can hedge it out, in a way, with all of the round robin bet picks. So since this weekend I wasn't successful on the $100 risked by winding up and losing $22, I'm going to see if I can redeem myself with the picks I make today and for tomorrow. So for today, let me give you my slate of mixed sports I have in mind. I'm going to be combining the NBA, college hoops, and then Monday night football, which may sound like a familiar theme, but I'm going to stick to these roots until I at least have more money in the account. So for the NBA, I like the Sixers to cover their spread against the Magic, the Bulls to cover their spread against the Hornets, and the Jazz to cover their spread against the Blazers. Turning over to college hoops, I like Kentucky to cover their spread against Central Michigan, I like Texas to cover theirs against Sam Houston, and then I'm going to like Gonzaga at night to cover their spread against Tarleton. 
Now over to the Monday night football game, it looks like Seattle's actually going to be an underdog, and I actually like them to win over the game, even if it's in Washington. So what I'm going to be adding to this slate is the Seattle money line, and I'm also going to be adding the Seattle and Washington over for this game. So this is going to make 8 total picks. For against the spread, I like the Sixers, Bulls, and Jazz in the NBA, Kentucky, Texas, and Gonzaga in college hoops, and then for Monday Night Football, I like Seattle to get an upset win and for the game to go over in total points. I'm going to be risking $1 on this bet slip, so it's going to risk $28 total dollars. Now the next slate I want to make is also going to be for today, and it's specifically in hopes for an underdog kind of night. So in the NBA today, there's going to be 9 games. And since I like making 8 slots, I've decided I'm going to make a bet pick for every single game in the NBA, except for the Philly game. And the reason I'm doing this is because I'm going to be making an NBA underdogs round robin. So for every single game today in the NBA except for the Philly game, I'm going to be choosing the underdog. Now if two teams are very closely matched and it says PK on them, what I'm going to do then is just pick the away team. Because in theory, they're the underdog. And I know this might seem like a counterintuitive move, especially since I chose the Bulls and the Jazz in my other round robin. But I'm honestly just doing this because there's a lot of plus money picks. And in plus money parlaying, you can make a lot more money than if you just choose something that's negative money betting. And if that completely flew over your head, it's okay, just let it be. I'll see how these picks go, and if I wind up going 4 for 8 at least, you'll see why I choose this method. So to recap it, I'll let you know what the matchups are, but the lines aren't out yet, so I'm not sure who an underdog is. But the game slates are going to be as follows. The Nuggets are going to be playing against the Heat, the Thunder are going to be playing against the Rockets, the Pacers are going to be facing the Wolves, the Hornets are facing the Bulls, Wizards are facing the Spurs, Cavs are facing the Mavs, the Blazers the Jazz, and then the Clippers are facing the Pelicans to wrap up the NBA night. So what I'm going to be doing for each of those games is picking the underdog, and then I'm going to be combining it in one big round robin. And since the lines aren't up right now, I'm not too sure which the underdogs are, and I don't want to guess that because I might be wrong in my guesses, and then I might be misleading for this podcast. So those are the two round robins I'll be creating for today. For tomorrow's round robin, I'm going to be sticking to just basketball. Now I'm going to be applying the same concept with my NBA underdogs pick on this slate, with the exception of three picks. Because there are five NBA games tomorrow, I'm going to be doing the same exact thing where I pick every single NBA underdog. Now the only game I could see this possibly being an issue in is the Warriors versus the Suns. Because they might be two evenly matched teams, if it says PK for their options, or there's not one true underdog, I'm going to be leaning towards the Warriors. And this is just because I think going into the game, at least currently, the Warriors are an underdog since the Suns are on such a huge winning streak. So in the NBA, I'm going to be choosing all five games, and I'm going to be choosing the underdogs in all of these games. But for college hoops, I'm not going to be choosing underdogs. I'm going to be choosing all of them against the spread. I think Duke can cover whatever their spread will be against Ohio State. I think Houston can cover whatever their spread is against Northwestern. And then to finish off the slate, I think Purdue will be able to cover their spread against Florida State. So again, this slate is going to be tomorrow's NBA games, all underdogs, mixed with Duke, Houston, and Purdue all covering their spread. On all of these round robins, I'm only risking 28 total dollars for the bet slip, because I'm putting a $1 risk amount on every single parlay that's created. And then I'll be recapping these picks on the next episode. 
Let's hope I can turn my luck around, and I'm hoping to do so with a bunch of underdog luck. So for the next two days, let's go dogs, baby. And whether you decide to follow my picks or fade them, I hope you find a way to make money using this segment in any way possible. And until next time, my degenerates, ape out. Hello class, today's lesson is going to be on the importance of hedge funds, mutual funds, and 401ks to the stock market. I'm going to be starting off with 401ks. So for starters, what are 401ks? Well a 401k is essentially a retirement saving plan, and many employers have been offering this because of the tax advantages it provides for the saver, which is you if you have this plan. Now the way this retirement plan is structured is that every time you get your paycheck, you would put a percentage of that paycheck into this savings plan. And then depending on if your employer matches or not, they would contribute to that savings plan as well. So in other words, a 401k is a backup plan so that when you're older later on in life, you have money somewhere stored off. It's kind of like a savings plan but on crack, because it's a lot harder to withdraw your money out of this, so you're more incentivized to hold off in the long run. So now let me get into the two types of 401ks you can have. You can have a traditional one or a Roth one. Now the primary difference is, is just the tax implications. In a traditional 401k, what's going to happen is your contributions are going to be pre-taxed. So this means that your contributions are going to be reduced in the taxable income. So when you get your paycheck, whatever amount you're contributing to your savings plan on that paycheck is actually being deducted from, and then when you get taxed, that's the amount you get taxed on. So let me give you an easy example. Imagine you got a $500 paycheck and you contributed $50, so 10%. What this would mean is that in order to figure out what you're actually getting taxed on for that paycheck, $50 would actually be subtracted first from that $500. So they're going to be taxing the $450 number. Do you see how this $50 wasn't taxed in your paycheck? This is what a traditional 401k is like. Now what a Roth account does is slightly different. Instead of contributing that $50 before getting taxed, it contributes the $50 after getting taxed. So the difference in tax for that one paycheck scenario is that for a Roth account, you're going to be taxed on $500 of that income, and then you're going to be contributing your $50. And for a traditional 401k, you're going to be contributing your $50, which is going to take away from that $500, and you're only going to be taxed $450 for that paycheck. So on a paycheck to paycheck scale, I can't tell you in the long run what actually pays out more. But what I can tell you is that when it comes time to withdraw your money, in a traditional account, you're going to have to pay taxes on what you withdraw. Whereas in a Roth account, you're not going to have to pay any taxes on what you withdraw because you essentially paid those taxes on the contributions earlier in all those other prior paychecks. Whereas in the traditional 401k, you didn't, so now you have to pay it all at once whenever you withdraw your money. So those are the primary differences between the two. And from what I've been told from older adults and seeing it now, they always have told me that the Roth is the better decision. And it makes sense because you're being taxed at face value in the moment. But when it comes time to retirement, when you withdraw all that money, you're not going to have to pay tax. And that's going to feel very nice. Also, if you create a Roth account when you're in a lower tax bracket and by the time you retire, you're in a higher one, the additional contributions you're making to that Roth account are not going to be taxed when you withdraw all that money. So let's say you start off a Roth account when you're in college, and maybe as you develop in your career, eventually you start making six figures. 
all the contributing money you're putting into that Roth, sure, it's getting taxed each paycheck you get, but when you withdraw all that money when it's time to retire, you're not going to have to pay any taxes on it. Whereas if you're in a regular 401k, you're going to have to pay those taxes as you withdraw the money. So when you're contributing to this savings plan, what exactly are you investing in? Well, you'll be investing in mutual funds because these savings plans are primarily meant to be very low risk. Even though you have the option to say aggressive growth, let me tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, that is not aggressive growth. I almost created a 401k Roth account with my state provider until I saw the options that I was going to be able to choose. The most aggressive growing thing I could have picked was a small cap mutual fund. So what this means is I would have put my money on a mutual fund that just invests in small cap companies. I mean, I wish I could just choose the small cap companies myself. But that's not what 401ks are designed for, so I quickly opted out, because I don't think it's for me. But if you decide to use these 401k accounts as a financial vehicle for yourself, by all means, feel free to do so. Just know that for this whole year of 2021, you would only be able to contribute up to $19,500 if you're under 50, and then for next year in 2022, you'll only be able to contribute up to $20,500. Now I bring these numbers up because if you think you can be investing more money than this on your own, then you have to view this as an opportunity cost because you won't be able to put more money in it. And you're also investing in mutual funds, not actual stocks or not actual indexes. So you also got to keep that in mind too. But if you're doing this for a long haul and you're doing this for a long picture and you really just don't want to check too much on your account, this might be for you. And this is what a lot of people in the world do. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just here to try and help you understand the differences between the two versions of the accounts you can open. And I'm also here to provide you some of the warnings that you might not truly know about these accounts. For example, if you ever got in a situation where you needed the money from this account and you were not over the age of 59 and a half years old, unless you could get an exemption, which last year during COVID there were exemptions, and you can apply for these exemptions, but I'm sure it's a grueling process and it probably takes a while, Whatever amount you try to withdraw, already off the bat without any other fees and taxes, you get a 10% early distribution tax. And if you're in a traditional 401k account, you're going to get taxed at whatever the tax rate would be while withdrawing on top of this 10% tax and then on top of any other fees that are associated. So if you're thinking that you're going to be withdrawing 20000 you might be looking at just 9000 And that could be a significant drop because then you might have to do it again. And you can see how this could be frustrating for some people because it might seem like you just lost about a year's worth of your money by withdrawing your own money too early. It seems dumb, and for me personally, that's the only reason I don't trust 401ks. In my opinion, unless the employer is matching because then it's worth it, I would just open up an own brokerage account. And then that way you can withdraw the money whenever you want and you just get charged the regular tax rate. And if you're holding long term, most likely it's going to be below 20%. And then this way you're not capped at how much you can invest in. But then again, this is just me because I'd like to invest in my own stuff. If you don't want to, these 401ks are perfect for you. And from what I've heard and what I've been told by everyone, I would recommend opening up a Roth one. Now if you still needed to withdraw this money and you wanted to avoid all of these fees, some companies and employers do offer a way for you to structure out a loan payment against your own money. This sounds super dumb in my opinion, and from reading what I did, I would advise against doing this at all costs, but if this is the only option you feel like you have left, then I want to at least let you know what you're in for. If you were to open up a loan against your 401k, first off, I'm not sure how it would be structured other than just a regular loan with interest on top of it, 
But let me warn you about one possible thing that could come back to bite you if you were to open up a loan. If you were to leave the company before you pay back this loan, you would have to pay back the whole lump sum amount after you decided to leave. So if they let you go, let's say, or you decided to quit, you would have to pay back the full amount of the loan. And if you're not able to pay the lump sum amount back, then what's going to happen is that one thing you were trying to avoid by paying that 10% withdrawal fee is going to enact. And you're going to have to pay a 10% early withdrawal fee on your 401k account for the loan amount you took out. So wouldn't it suck if you took out a loan amount on your own money and then later on decided to leave a company you didn't want to work for and then it came back to bite you in the ass because you didn't have the money to pay them back right away? So in the end, you still wound up paying that 10% early withdrawal fee. To me, this is just another con to a 401k that I don't like. But don't let my opinion on it influence you on not opening one up. I'll let you know I personally don't have one opened up. And unless I work for an employer that matches, I probably will never have one. I'm willing to place a bet on myself that I can manage my own money better than anyone else can. And I guess I'll just find out in the long run if it was worth it. And then one last thing to keep note on these 401k accounts, because you do open these up with a different employer each time if you were to work job to job. If you happen to leave a job, make sure that you're able to transfer everything from your 401k account from that employer over to another account that you can manage. So whether that means transferring it to your new employer's account or transferring it to a brokerage agency that you just opened up or maybe even a bank. I'm not sure how it would be facilitated, but I know your employer would be able to help you with every step on the way just make sure that you transfer over to the 401k account if you were to leave your job. Because I would hate for you to have a bunch of money left in savings over with another employer and they just completely forget about it and don't let you know. Then they can hold on to it and it's just extra money that's in their account and they don't even know whose it is. So make sure you claim your money when you leave your company if they forget to let you know. Next, I would like to talk about mutual funds. Mutual funds, just like 401ks, are another form of a financial vehicle. It's another place you can store your money in and try and see if it drives up, down, or just stays steady. Now, the definition of a mutual fund coming from Investopedia.com is that it's a professionally managed investment fund that pools money from investors and invests it in securities for them. And these securities are typically stocks, bonds, and any other assets. Now, the way these investors can make money from these mutual funds is from the dividends that the mutual fund provides, which a dividend is just a form of payment for holding off on shares. And when you buy into these mutual funds, you typically buy shares. And then aside from just the dividend payment, you can make money from these mutual funds when managers sell assets at a gain, and then they distribute these gains evenly amongst the amount of shares held on everyone. Then the third and final way you could make money off of these mutual funds is if you were to sell your individual shares at a higher market price than what it says you bought it for. So you can make money off of mutual funds three ways. And essentially what a mutual fund is, is there a business that makes investments? So unlike Starbucks or Apple, who are businesses that make products or cater to customers, these mutual funds are a business that caters to customers in terms of investment choices. And there's three ways you can make money from it. And for each individual mutual fund, the fund value is derived off of something called the net asset value. And what the net asset value is, is just taking the total asset value of all the securities that fund has and dividing it by the total shares outstanding offered for that fund. So imagine if a company was running a million dollars worth of assets and they had 500,000 shares, their net asset value would be $2 per share. So if you owned a share in this mutual fund, you would technically have it at $2 a share. And if you just hold on to this share, at some point in the future, the mutual fund will give you a dividend payment for it. And if you want to make more money off of it later on, 
you can sell this share and get some money. Now these funds are typically categorized and run in strict manners. So when you invest in a specific fund, you know exactly what you're investing in. I'll give you a small brief explanation of some of the funds out there, but there can be up to hundreds and thousands of different variations of funds you can create. But one of the fund types is a fixed income fund. And these funds are typically ones that invest in debt instruments that pay interest. So they'll be investing in things like bonds and treasury bills, or anything that pays a fixed amount of interest. Hence the name fixed income. So you know exactly how much money you're going to be getting each month. It's a very low risk fund, but at the end of the day, a lot of these funds are. Now another fund you can invest in if you want to be a little spicier is something called an index fund. What these index funds do for you is they invest in market indexes. And they invest in the growing market indexes for you. So indexes like the S&P 500, the Dow, and many others out there that are created, they do all of this hard work for you. And their philosophy is that it's hard to beat the market consistently, so you might as well just invest in the whole market itself. Not a bad philosophy. Now another fund if you didn't want to do just this index one is a balanced mutual fund. What a balanced mutual fund is, is a hybrid of everything. So they can add stocks, bonds, and other kinds of assets and financial instruments to this portfolio. It's exactly what it says, a little bit of everything, but it's nicely and evenly balanced. Thanos would surely be happy. Now the next fund I want to talk about before I move on, because like I said, there can be hundreds and thousands of these combinations, is a money market fund. What these money market funds is quite honestly putting your money in what is considered a safe bet, which is just short-term government treasury bills. Now the reason these are typically safe bets is because you're not expecting the government to collapse in the short run. And I'll tell you why this is considered a safe bet. Because when these indexes purchase these short-term government treasury bills, the net asset value is typically going to be valued around $1. So if you want to think about it, if you put all your money in these short-term government bills and you always assume the government wasn't going to collapse in any given moment, what you're doing is you're fighting off inflation by always having your money valued at $1. You might not get what I mean right now, but trust me, by leaving your money in your checking account, you're actually having it devalue over time. By putting your money in these government treasury bills, if you were technically to do that, and I'm not advising you do, but these indexes do, you would technically be fighting off inflation, and you'd be doing it in the least risky way possible. That is, up until 2008. Because in 2008, when there was a huge financial crisis, which at some point in this podcast, trust me, I will break down that whole crisis, but I'm still in the middle of researching and kind of asking around some adults what they went through during that time period, but what happened in 2008 with these indexes is this net asset value of roughly $1, which is what it should have stayed at, it fell below a dollar. So it's almost like that Rick and Morty episode where Rick changes the value of the dollar in the universe from 1 to 0. Now it didn't happen to that scale, but the indexes created the value of a dollar to something less than of a dollar. And if you're investing in these government short-term treasury bills on the premise that it's going to stay at a dollar so you're fighting off inflation, and you see that this value goes below it, that's a huge red flag that there's an economic downturn and shit just hit the fan. And indeed, shit hit the fan in 2008. So, but enough on the types of funds you can invest in, because if you truly wanted to invest in something of your flavor, I guarantee you it's out there. Whether that's big cap companies, whether you want to invest in just food industry companies, there's an index out there for you, you just have to search for it if you really want to go the mutual fund investing route. But before you decide if mutual funds are the investment vehicle for you, let me let you know on some of the fees associated with it. 
Mutual fund fees typically vary between 1-3% a year, depending on the fund itself, and there might also be trading fees known as commission off of that fund. And on top of that, if you wanted to sell your shares at an earlier date than what is specified on a contract, you might also get expensed on that. So you would just have to look into the fee structure that the mutual fund has provided for you before you put your money in. And then after that, you have to put your trust in a lot of people. And here's what I mean by this. Everyone that puts their money in the same mutual fund has the same idea that you do. I want to put my money in here and I hope it grows. But then here's a harsh reality that can happen. What if everyone pulls their money all out at once? Or tries to? Well, it's going to tank the price of your shares because you're invested in this company. You're invested in this mutual fund, which in return is the company you're invested in. Think of yourself as a little mini angel investor for this company. You're giving them a small amount of cash, but there's thousands of you. So if all the thousands of you decide to withdraw at the same time, then that would be really bad. That's one disadvantage to a mutual fund that I really want to point out, and that's one reason I don't really invest in these. And I'm not here to say that they're a bad option, but they also typically get outperformed by the S&P 500 and some hedge funds for that matter of fact. Mutual funds are typically on the lower end scale for where you want to put your money, but it's typically these mutual funds that companies hire to take over the investment action for all their 401ks. So some of your 401k returns might be linked to some mutual fund that your employer decides to partner with. Just want to give you some food for thought, because if your employer happens to choose a bad mutual fund, then that's no fault on your end, but I'd be willing to argue that it is a fault on your end, because you're willing to trust someone else with your money. So therefore, I say you can't really complain about the end results. But if you don't trust your money with someone else and you trust it in yourself, you have only yourself to blame. Now if you like the idea of a mutual fund, but you're not really a fan of all the fees that might get attached to it, there is another type of fund that I didn't specifically mention because it's not entirely a mutual fund. It's considered an ETF, which is an exchange traded fund. And what an exchange traded fund is, is a structured investment trust that's able to be traded on the markets. So this offers more options on the actual fund being traded. Literally options, because now you can trade these ETFs in the derivatives market. You can't trade a mutual fund on the derivatives market because a mutual fund is just a regular company. And unless they go public and put themselves out there on the market and create themselves to be an ETF, then they couldn't do this. And another pro on top of these ETFs is that you're not going to be paying these 1-3% to transaction fees or this early sale fees because you're literally trading this ETF on the market like an actual stock. So let me give you an example. In terms of a mutual fund, I tried to find the most top performing mutual funds over the past 5-10 to 10 years. What I came up with was one called Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, which based off that name tells me that it's a Vanguard index that tracks the whole stock market. Well their average 3 year returns over the last 3 years was about 13%. And then Fidelity 500 Index, which I'm assuming is just the S&P 500 but a Fidelity version, also gained about 13% over the last 3 years. So they average about 13% over the last 3 years, and in general mutual funds will typically average anywhere between 5-8% to from year to year. But that's just the average of them all. The better ones will probably go anywhere between 8-12%, to and the lower ones will probably be somewhere between 4-8%. to And then you have to account that 1-3% expense fee that you're going to have to pay every year. But if you wanted to avoid all of these fees, and just trust yourself with your ETF picking skills, you could pick an exchange traded fund. So if you like the idea of a mutual fund, but you don't want to actually pick an individual company, you can go out there on the market and see what kind of ETF 
closely mimics a mutual fund that you want to invest in. And then you can actually buy physical shares of it on the market and hold it. And you still get the same benefits you would as a mutual fund, except for you're not actually signing up to put your money with this actual company. What you're doing now instead is just going out in the market. And one of the most top performing ETFs I could find out there in the market was something called the Invesco QQQ Trust. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this ETF before, but I'm pretty sure I've heard something about the QQQ on a commercial before because this sounds relatively familiar. But regardless, from the last 10 year returns, they've produced about 22.6% each year. That's a pretty good return rate, especially because the S&P 500 from 2010 to 2020 averaged about 13%. And from the year 2000 to now, the S&P 500 has averaged a return rate of about 16.5%. So I'm not saying the S&P 500 is bad, but I'm just trying to let you know how well this Invesco QQQ Trust has actually been doing and it's an ETF. Just another example that there are many financial instruments and vehicles out there for you to get yourself rich off of. And then the final topic I wanted to talk about today was hedge funds. So what is a hedge fund? Well, a hedge fund is just like a mutual fund in a way, but it's more of a wealthy club and it's one that you can't get in. Because according to Investopedia, a hedge fund is an actively managed investment pool whose managers use a wide range of strategies, often including buying with borrowed money and trading esoteric assets in an effort to beat average investment returns for clients. And these clients are typically wealthy clients because there's a huge amount of money that you have to put in if you even want to be invested with these hedge funds in the first place. And I probably said something in that definition that doesn't sound familiar. What is an esoteric asset? Well, I looked up what an esoteric asset is, and the definition is, it's a debt instrument as well as other instruments that are structured in a way that few people understand. Some typical examples are ones as credit default swaps. So you're telling me hedge funds invest wealthy people's money buying stocks and options and derivatives with borrowed money to trade these esoteric assets, which are assets that are structured in a way that very few people understand and they're doing this in order to be average investment returns for their clients, which are the top 1%. What could possibly go wrong? Absolutely nothing. But before I turn this into a shit-talking hedge fund episode, let me get back to the main lesson. Because these hedge funds, just like derivatives, started off with a true cause. You see, hedge funds used to operate in a manner where they would follow a long short equities model. What this meant is they would be long in one position or long in one category and then create a short position opposite of their long position just as a way to hedge. This is where they get the name hedge fund from. So a classic example would be if we had a hedge fund that's primary focus was on cyclical stocks. So let's say they devote 70% of their portfolio balance to long cyclical stock positions. So this means they purchase positions that are going to be expiring at least a year or longer out only on cyclical stocks. Well, in order to hedge against this, in case for a short amount of period, these cyclical stocks don't perform too well, they might put 30% of their portfolio in something else that's not cyclical. So they might put 30% of their portfolio into stuff like food and power companies, things that don't rely on cyclical business natures. So originally, this is how hedge funds started. But you can guess, when you start seeing large amounts of money inflow, especially on money that you can borrow, which is like using credit, you can see how theory started getting wilder. So now as a hedge fund, since you're not regulated by the SEC as harsh or nearly even at all compared to mutual funds, 
they're able to experiment with all kinds of theses on this long short model. And who knows if subjectively they change what they consider a long position. What if they think a long position is a month? Because what if they decide that they want to live as a company week to week and they're going to consider a long position one month? Well, that's going to be really risky. So you're going to have a lot of returns in the short run and grow into a dominant player, or you're going to get eaten up by another hedge fund and you're going to have to liquidate. Now, if you find yourself rich enough to even consider investing your money in a hedge fund, I first want to say congratulations, because it's going to cost you a lot just to park your money in here. But if you're the small 1% even listening to this and you want to park your money in these hedge funds, let me set you up on the kinds of fees you're looking at. Because for these hedge funds, managers charge a 1-2% to fee of all the assets. So this means they take all of their assets and they're going to take 1-2% to of that. And that's going to be charged as a fee for you. Or at least it's going to be a dispersed fee amongst all of the hedge fund participants. On top of this 1-2% to fee of all the assets, managers also expect a 20% performance fee on the profits. So whatever the gains are, 20% of it is already going to go into their pockets. And then after that, 1-2% of the valuation of the assets in total are also going to be going away. So what's left after that is going to be distributed amongst you and all of your hedge fund buddies. And when we're talking 1% in the billions range, that can be a lot of money. Now some other cons aside from the hefty fees that are associated with even joining this rich society club is that some of these hedge funds are really poorly run because certain concentrated positions can lead to huge losses. For example, this year, I can guarantee you there were a lot of hedge funds that went under over this whole meme stock frenzy. Because anyone that had at least 10x leverage on these stocks and at least a position size of 5% definitely lost 50% worth of their portfolio. Just look at Melvin Capital. They lost over 50% of their value in mid-January over that whole GameStop frenzy. And it's not going to stop yet because these hedge funds are always trying different practices and if they ever get caught with their pants down or if they ever get caught in a bad spot, they might have to liquidate. And all that liquidating money is going straight into the market, which is going straight into the holders on the other end of the deal. Because remember, whenever a stock shoots straight up or straight down, there is a winner and a loser on every end of that deal. And I think I'd be pulling my hair out if I was the loser on one of these zip rips. Now aside from the incompetence of the hedge fund concentrating all of their position in one area which can lead to huge losses, two other cons of putting your money in these hedge funds is that using this leverage can make a small loss a huge one. So how I just explained that if you're 10x leverage on something, this means a 5% loss now turns into 50% because you're leveraged 10 times the money. This means you promised to pay 10 times the money on this security and you already made the transaction like a buffoon. On the other end of the deal, if the stock goes up 5%, you're up more than 50%. And trust me, in terms of derivatives, this is how it works. But I just find it crazy how you can use borrowed money to purchase stocks because I'm pretty sure one time I was curious enough to look it up and technically you're not allowed to get out a loan and then invest it in the market, but the idea has definitely crossed my brain before. And this is exactly what hedge funds are doing, but they're not doing it with banks' money, they're doing it with rich people's money. And I mean, let's be honest, what if they are doing it with banks' money? They can consider it an operational expense, because for hedge funds and mutual funds, investing in the market is an operational expense. 
So if you actually want to invest alone in the market, I guess you can just become a hedge fund. Just call yourself a hedge fund and start investing loans in the market. And then when you're called back on your money, just say whoops, and you'll get slapped a little 5% fee on it. No, all jokes aside, that's probably a really bad idea. But I still will let you know I have considered it. So now aside from the exponential amount of loss you can incur in these hedge funds, another reason you might not want to invest your money in this unless you truly are a long-term investor is that these funds require holders to lock up their money for long periods of time. And you can see why. If they're investing on borrowed money, imagine not having the liquidity to actually pay your customers and then they all come rushing at you asking for it. You're going to at least want to put in place with every customer that they have to hold their money with you for at least a couple years. Because this way, you're at least setting a deadline for when you need the money. So the three cons I can really take away from hedge funds, aside from having ridiculous fees, is that a concentrated position can lead to huge losses, and since they're using leverage to make these bets in the first place, a small loss can turn into a huge one. And then on top of that, if these small losses are turning into huge ones and you just recently started with this fund, you're actually required to just lock up your money in there for a long period of time. So you'll just have to trust that whatever they're doing is going to work. But I'm probably not speaking to you, because let me be honest, do you have 500k just laying around to toss at a hedge fund manager? Because if you don't, you probably can't join one. But if there are smaller hedge funds out there for you to join and you can do it, by all means do so if you really want to. Because the profits can be maximizing. And although most of these hedge funds get outperformed by the indexes like the S&P 500, there are some that definitely beat mutual funds, and there are a lucky few that even outperform the S&P 500. So if you can find these small few, by all means don't let me hold you back and start this hedgy life. Because there are some hedge fund managers out there that actually perform really well. And I'm about to give you two examples of two hedge fund managers that have outperformed the S&P 500 while maintaining a huge portfolio balance. Now I looked up a website for number one ranking managers of hedge funds and the number one manager that came on the list was a guy named John Kim and he works for Night Owl Capital Management and since June of 2013 he's gotten a 611% return which in terms of percentage rate that's about 76% every year. That's an insane return. A lot of it obviously has come over this past year and a half but still that's crazy and his total portfolio value is $569 million. So he's still managing more money than half of the hedge fund managers out there. And he ranks number one in his field, so he's doing something right. Now the next hedge fund manager I wanted to talk about is actually really impressive. And she's the first female that ranks in number 18th on the list, but number one in all of females for this whole list. And her name is Lisa M. Jones. And she manages the Pioneer Investment Management Firm. And since June of 2013, she has gotten a 283% return, which comes out to about 35% per year. So although it's not as crazy as the 76% as John Kim, it still beats the S&P 500 easily. And one thing that's even more impressive than John Kim's resume is that Lisa manages a bigger portfolio. Her portfolio value is $31.4 billion. So she manages more money than 99% of these hedge fund managers. And when you manage a lot more money, it's actually a lot harder to get these crazy returns how John Kim has, which is why her portfolio is very diverse. It's diverse which minimizes risk, and she still has managed to get a substantial amount of return. And ranking against all these men, it's pretty cool to see how a female ranks in the top 20.
I'm not gonna lie, as I was scrolling through this list, I was hoping I didn't have to scroll forever to the very bottom. Because then I would have felt really sad that my point of female investors not really wanting to be out there in the market would have been true. But I'm very glad that I found Lisa M. Jones ranked in at number 18. And her portfolio value of $31.4 billion is crazy. The fact that she is able to beat the S&P 500 with these hedge fund tactics just proves that women can be great investors as well. And even though the word hedge fund brings a bad taste to my mouth, I'll still at least give you the informational resources that I find so that you can come to your own conclusions on these hedge funds. Overall, I don't like them. But if you're a fan of hedge funds, I highly recommend visiting this website. Just look up rankings of hedge fund managers and then click on the website. And then try and find a manager that you like if you want to go down this path. Because it shows you what their portfolio holdings are. So if you want to just follow their portfolio holdings, by all means do that. You can essentially be a part of this huge wealthy club without really paying the commission for it. You'll just have to keep track of what the manager does and whenever they update their positions. Which I'll let you know right now, probably won't be as many updates as this podcast. But it's still worth a try to track someone down, especially if they're getting these returns. So now that I've given you some more insight into 401ks, mutual funds, and what hedge funds are, I want to let you know why I talked about them today, and what I think their importance to the stock market holds. Now this next little talking point is all going to be conceptual, so I'm not going to be diving into true numbers and stats to try and drive a point home. Instead what I'll be doing is explaining the three things I just talked about, and try and get you to see how in the stock market they're actually true and key players to everything that's going around. Because remember, this lesson was on investment vehicles. So this means anyone that doesn't want to invest their own money personally, just trust someone else to do it. And yes, there are rich millionaires and billionaires out there, probably more millionaires, that don't care too much for the stock market, so they will give it to a hedge fund to just manage for them. So here's where I'm going with this. All of this money that gets parked into these financial vehicles is almost fixed to stay. Think about it. In your 401k plans, a lot of people aren't able to withdraw until 49 and a half. So that means all of this money that's going into the stock market via these 401k accounts are actually parked money. And then when you have people investing in their mutual funds and these mutual funds go out and invest in the markets for them, as long as they don't pull out their money, that's also parked money. And then to add on top of that, you've got these hedge funds that practice really crazy tactics so they make sure that when they secure money from rich people, that it's put into their accounts for a long time. Now I've never worked at one and I can't vouch for what these deals look like, so I'm not sure. But I'm willing to bet that the money has to be parked in there for at least over a year or two. Which definitely gives hedge funds enough time to figure out how to move money around in case clients ever start asking for it back. But my overlying premise in all of this is think of all of that money that's getting routed to these institutions that's just being parked and it's being ready to be played with in the stock market. So aside from just your novice investors, regular retail investors, huge large corporations and companies, you've got the backing and foundations of these hedge funds, mutual funds, and 401ks to prop up and hold this stock market up. Along with that, you've got a government whose balls are literally in the hands of corporations. And corporations only care about the stock market. So you don't think the government's going to do whatever's best for these corporations, which is keep stock markets up and place laws and certain regulations that benefit them? So I hope you can see why I think the stock market is more than just a gamble. 
It's an opportunity. Remember how I said if I had one word to describe the stock market, it would be opportunity? This is why. You've got so many players involved on keeping this shit propped up that if it were all to fall, not only would you feel really bad about your account, but the whole world would go in chaos. All these hedge funds would have to find liquidity. All of these mutual funds would have to find liquidity. People would be rushing to their 401ks, not caring about that 10% fee. It would create chaos. There'd be a lot bigger problems in the world than your account being cut in half. I guarantee you that. So until you get there in that situation, why not invest in the stock market? If we are in that situation, don't you think there's going to be bigger problems in the world? And sometimes it seems like the media is trying to paint that the bigger problems in the world are there. But then you look back on it six months later and you think, wow, why did we overhype that? And sometimes that's what leads to these emotional trades. So remember, always listen to your gut and your intuition. And I'm hoping that by giving you the lesson on these mutual funds, hedge funds, and 401k balances, you can see that the stock market is actually a fully healthy market and it's propped up by a lot of players, so you have almost nothing to worry about. The only time you have to worry is if everyone wants their money at once, because then we've got ourselves a serious liquidity issue, which if you remember me using the word liquidity crisis, it was also after certain crashes in the market. And since I don't see everyone and all of these players at once figuring out that they just want their money, I'm always going to have the full trust that the stock market's going to go up in the long run. And what I mean in the long run is on five-year interval scales. Because if you measure out the stock market on five-year interval scales since the existence of it, you'll see that the trajectory is only up. So remember, when in doubt, zoom out. Well everyone, if you've made it this late into the lesson so far, I just want to say thank you, love you, and have a good day. Until next time, ape out. for the week.